Okay, please turn to the Gospel of Luke. I'll be reading Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 31. Luke 5, 27 through 31. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Father, I pray that every one of us in here be on the right side of that equation and be called. May the grace, not only initially in conversion, but ongoingly in the Christian life, the grace of the consciousness, of the reality, of the depths of our sin, be manifested to us in the glorious context of hanging with you, Jesus, friend of sinners. I pray. Amen. Think of the stupidity of, of a sign on a doctor's office that said, only those who are well may enter. Or how stupid it would be for anyone to say, when I get better... I'll go to the doctor. It's just as stupid as the mentality of people like us in this world that may and have said stuff like, well, if I can just get my life cleaned up and get rid of some of these bad habits, patterns of life, then I will become a Christian. The world's filled with people inside the church and outside the church that think Christianity is for good people. Look at them. They don't do this. They don't do that. And so, there's good people in the world. And this Jesus thing is for them. Well, it's real simple. If in here this morning you are actually a Christian, look in the mirror. You can close your eyes and just look at you. It's obvious He did not call the righteous. If you're in Him, He called you a disgusting sinner. Drug addicts, alcoholics, 
cheaters, in business, mean-spirited, perverts, religious, self-righteous people. He looked at you and He said, follow me. And because you're in Christ, that means that you as a sin, sick, rebel, got up and have been following Jesus. Now you know what happens? Often down the road, you may look at your life and say, yes, I remember that initial time in my life five years ago or 30 years ago or whenever that happened. But what often happens down the road of our life is that we, as, as, as we, according to Scripture, do conglomerate together in community called the church. And many times we as Christians in our churches give off the same stinking scent that the Pharisees in our text do. Where the sense is, People might feel. We might give them reason to feel. Only the well are welcome here. Think about that very stupid, stupid song from the, I think it was the 60s, but you hear it still all the time. Which one do you think I'm thinking of? There you go, baby. <laughs> never been a sinner, never sinned. How's it go, Jesus? Uh, well, maybe this is a different one. Never been a sinner, never sinned. I got a friend in Jesus. Or, yeah. All right. All right. But a lot of the world actually thinks that kind of stuff. See, we Christians can grow to be pretty good and skilled at putting on a facade of spirituality that far exceeds the reality of real life and where we really are. And to the point where those who don't know Christ may be around us, they really do get a sense of, I know that's not me. Those are... Religion and church, that's for people like that. And they, they're, some people are really aware, like this tax collector. That's not me, so I guess I'm not made for church life. Okay, see, that kind of mentality, to the extent the church, and the church always has done this for 2,000 years, we've always had the, the danger of being much like the Pharisees since the time that Jesus has come and in the name of Jesus. But our text this morning just has one big problem with that. And that is that Jesus teaches the exact opposite. That there's nothing about the community He, he draws that should give the scent that you messed up sinners, you're not welcome here. But instead, you messed up sinners. You are the very ones that, who will realize that are welcome here. Because I've called you to repentance. Here's the point this morning. 
for me, 30 years ago, when I came to Christ initially, I had no righteousness of my own. 30 years later, I have no righteousness of my own to present to Christ. Jesus' community, unlike the community of some of these Jews in the first century, became members in the Pharisaic tradition. And many churches over the ages, His community is made up of sinful scum who were so happy to party now with Jesus like Levi, and they are about inviting other sinful scum to the party to meet their Savior. Let's look at it. Start with verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and He saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And He said to him, Follow me. Okay, wow. We don't wow, but if you were living in the first century, in AD 31 here, you would do what many of these people did. And they went, wow! And they didn't mean it like in a cool way. This was huge. So, let's just kind of get a little historical context. Rome now, since about 68 B.C. Okay, we're about 100 years in of Roman rule after being dominated by others and had a little bit of freedom. And then Rome, the Jews for the most part, hate Rome's rule. And now, Rome, their system of taxing was called tax farming. And what they would do throughout their empire and all the differing people's groups through which they have now come to dominate is they would draw districts like we do with congressmen, etc. They'd draw districts and, and then they would figure out how many people were there and they would figure out financially what the, the number would be of, of monies that they should be collecting in taxes and then they would take in bids for people who want to take that business in. And the highest bidder would get it. And that person would be responsible to meet that bid from extracting the money of ta- differing taxes from the people. Here within Israel, the Jewish people. And these were fellow Jews who would take on this business. Everything above that they can extract from the people... That's how they made their money and profit. Now, these guys who got the bid, they had numbers of employees called tax collectors, like Levi here in our text. And now, they would be collecting the taxes, and they owed their boss so much, and they had their ways of also extracting for their own pockets. Let me just read a paragraph from Zondervan's Encyclopedia of the Bible on on what's going on here in the first century. The taxes levied by the Roman government were many and varied. There was, first of all, the poll tax. This had to be paid by every male over 14 and every female over 12. The aged were exempt. 
There was then the land tax, which was payable in kind. Okay, you got your produce, your farming, okay, and then the percentage, the tax man would come and take it. Both of these direct taxes were collected by Roman officials in Palestine from those they meted it out to. Now, in addition, there were many forms of indirect taxation. Charges were made on all imports and exports, including the transportation of slaves. These were collected by the telonoi, same word for Levi in our text, by the tax collectors that we see in the Gospels. They examined goods and collected tolls on roads for the use of the roads and in bridges. And there was also a market toll in Jerusalem, which was introduced by Herod, end quote. So it's all these other tolls, the roads and pulling so much income of fish out of the lake right here over in Capernaum in a tax booth where people knew this guy, Levi. It was here where these guys like Levi would make their profit and become pretty wealthy because it's the system of how much. It's not real hard and fast. It's not this flat tax people talk about. How much can they squeeze out of their fellow Jews? Tax collectors. These guys were hated by their fellow Jews in first century Palestine. They represented the domination of Roman rule over them. They're collecting taxes for them. They hated that aspect of it and the other aspect which they knew. They also represented their own pockets at their expense and they had the legal power to do it. So much so that the rabbinic writings that we now have, looking back in the first century, how the, the rabbinic writings of the Jews talked about them. Tax collectors were referred to as robbers. They had legal right to rob people. Now, what did Jesus think about them? He, he lived in this culture. Let me just listen to how Jesus uses this term, tax collectors, elsewhere. In, in Matthew 5, he says this. For if you love those who love you, you think you're great, follow, followers of me? Okay, okay, Jesus, what is he going to do? He's going to look for the scum of the world to compare it to. Okay, so what's he do? If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? That is not a high view of tax collectors. He says in Matthew 21, John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. One more. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be as a Gentile. Okay, if you understand first century Judaism, it's, that's a really low blow. Let him be as a Gentile or a tax collector. Your fellow Jewish tax collectors scraping the bottom 
of the bell. That's Jesus' understanding because He lives in this culture. This is what's going on. And so, lowlife Levi and his buddies were the lowest of the low. Okay? Got that little historical context? Now, we look at our text. The only thing that I can really come up, summarize it, is I look at this and say, Jesus is a trip. You've got to feel what's happening when we read. And after this event we saw last week, he went out and he saw a tax collector whose name was Levi. He was sitting there in his tax booth. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. Now, I really think this is not the first time that Jesus and Levi met. Just like we saw with Peter and, and them. And Luke doesn't give, give you the whole thing, but, but two things. Look, Jesus' house now is in Capernaum. It's where he lives. This is happening in Capernaum. This is right around this area where Levi is. I'm pretty sure Jesus had to pay some taxes to this guy over the last couple of years, and for his family. But, but, but now he, he's been in this public preaching ministry probably close to a year, and it's hard to imagine that, that because of what we're reading here now, that, that Levi has not at times found himself kind of like sneaking to the outskirts of the crowds, listening to uh, Jesus in these outdoor, because his popularity is growing, this is happening more and more, he's preaching publicly outside, that Levi's probably standing by a tree, you don't want to get too close, because everyone knows Levi, and you're not really liked, you've got your own circle of friends in low lives that you hang out with, and it's, I, I just really do imagine that Levi and Jesus have also had some discussions, just like he did before with Peter, that Luke didn't even, even mention, about Levi's spiritual life, about the kingdom of God. And so in verse 27 where it says, Jesus saw Levi. That word saw, it's, it's not, he just saw him. Oh, look at that. It, it's this, he observed him is this word. He, he had a look, evidently, at Levi. To, to our, where I can just picture, Levi, it was a look of eye contact. What does the rabbi want from me? And then the answer came. And it was like a grenade going off at his tax booth. Follow me. And then it says, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, don't think it means that he was irresponsible and didn't get his affairs in order and all that. But the point that Luke is making Levi, the tax collector, stopped that business. And he became a disciple. He followed Jesus. See, disciples in the first century, this is not a new thing. Rabbis had disciples. We have already seen in understanding the Jewish culture that they have these traditions, the oral laws, and they're quoting Hillel. Okay. And right now, Gamaliel is a major rabbi going on in society. And they have their sayings. Who? Their disciples. 
Oral tradition, a disciple, follow me. Jesus is saying, come, be one of these. Day to day, be with me when I'm at the synagogue and then in the open fields. Disciples that He's calling, listen to Him. Is what's going on. Just like the other Jews had them. And they memorize His sayings. His words. That's how the oral traditions of the Pharisees get carried down. This is what He is being called to. And of course, you know, Levi did follow Him, didn't he? For the rest of his life. This is the guy we know as Matthew. This is the one... Not just of 70 and 150 or 500 disciples. This is one of the close, intimate 12 that Jesus called in to be apostles and penned the first gospel. Now, what is amazing when you think about the story that of all the people in Capernaum, Levi, the tax collector, has got to be the most unacceptable candidate to become a follower, a disciple, an apostle of Jesus. But the text says Jesus is the one who sought him out. That's what Luke is saying. He looked at him and said, follow me. Come, be my disciple. Jesus does everything backward. Does everything wrong. You know, who else is He going to call to be of this intimate twelve? Well, we already have the problem here with Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, and these fishermen, with this guy making sure he sucks more of our income out of us and in, in, in our business. They know Levi. Oh, but that's nothing. He's going to call at least one for sure. But I'm, I'm, I'm not sure on this yet. We'll get there. Whether he's got two of these other guys. They're not part of the Pharisee community. They're part of another community called the Zealots. And from religious motivation to be a zealot, their goal in life is insurrection. It is violent attack on Rome to get them off their back. And this Jew, fellow Jew, is on their side representing them. And Jesus is going to call them to come together in this close group. There must be something about Jesus that can unite such disparate people. Maybe Christianity isn't about people's cultures. Maybe it's about the person of Jesus. Where a young 20-something today who wears dark frame glasses and skinny pants has a lot in common with an 84-year-old woman who's from a radically different century. Because Jesus called and notice the first thing Levi does, essentially. I don't know if it's the next day or four days later. He's going to plan it because this is going to cost him a lot of money. He's going to have servants there. He's going to have a cuisine laid out and drink and the whole works. He throws a party for and in honor of Jesus, the special 
guest. Verse 29, And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Somehow, Levi hearing the Gospel, however you want to put this, Jesus call him, didn't say, okay, going to leave all this? I make good money doing it. He was thrilled to throw a great party and invite all his other cronies, tax collectors, the lowlifes of society besides tax collectors, because usually these guys are going to gather those guys around them. Sometimes you need people to, you know what I mean? Help you collect. But the most stunning thing about the text is not that he threw the party. It's that Jesus went. This, in this culture, to many Jews, was shocking. That Jesus went and he ate with these guys and he drank with them and he laughed with them and he partied with them and he asked questions that were probing of them and taught them what he's about in this kingdom of God. And then a day or two, or three days later, whenever it is, there's some big gap here between what we just saw at the party and the next verse. There is an encounter that happened that we read in verse 30. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at His disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? The reason I say we're pretty sure this is not the same night at all. The Pharisees are not at the party. If they were invited to this party, they would not have gone, for one. See, these everyday religious people that we've talked about, these Pharisees, they take very seriously their religion and their religiosity, their lifestyles. They are not nominal. They're serious. And they're serious about their strict rules of ceremonial purity in regards to places you go, objects that you drink out of or eat off of, and the kind of food and the company you keep. Luke says, and they said to him, he uses his word, they grumble. His point is, they were not asking a question. I'm really curious, how can you guys do that? It is an accusation. Why? It gives you the right. You're a religious leader. Your guru Jesus guy here. What the heck are you doing? Eating with sinners. And tax collectors. Hmm. See, their big problem was simply that Jesus went to the party and hung out with these tax collectors. And sinners. You've got to feel what they're feeling to appreciate it, not just easily judge them because we might miss 
something. This, my analogy here does not get at it, I don't think. Because I, I, I don't think we can feel as strongly as these religious Jews did. But it would be like well-known evangelical leaders today and are hanging out with and partying with pornographers and abortionists. And maybe, yeah, they want to get the gospel over, but they're also befriending them. And they're laughing with them. And they're going to their invites. This Jesus, as we have seen, comes not only to touch the faces of lepers and the outcasts, of society. He parties and he eats and he laughs with tax collectors and sinners and tells them the truth of the kingdom of God. This many times is an outrage to conservative Christian, I mean conservative first century Jewish Pharisees. Jesus answers the question because he knows it and he's there. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's his answer. Jesus, why do you go to the party? That's His answer. And so we don't miss it. He is not praising the Pharisees. He's not saying, oh, you don't need me because you're righteous. It's not His point. It's sarcasm. And He knows they're not going to hear what they need to hear for the most part. He is saying, if you guys think you're good enough to merit salvation, then you know you don't need a physician. You don't need what I've come. In your eyes, you're well. You're fine. You're righteous. And I haven't come to call those people who think they're righteous. You wouldn't come anyway. You think you have no need of a doctor. Jesus saves only one kind of person. Those who are sinners and know they are sinners. Let's just slow down to understand these people in front of him now. We have the Pharisees, this group. The, the preachers, the teachers, the leaders, and, and then your everyday Jewish Pharisee who is very strict in their religion. Okay, this, Who is Jesus saying this to? These people are serious Bible people. They study the Scripture and discuss them together and always are going to meetings together in order to do so. Now, there's nothing wrong with the Scripture. What was wrong was their interpretation and their prideful, arrogant hearts and what they would see and not see in the Scripture. What I mean is this. In their Scriptures that they accepted, or stuff like this, evidently, 
They did not get it when we read in Psalm 14, verses 2 to 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. Or, as David examined his own heart in the Psalms and said in Psalm 143, they should have heard this, they should have known this, when David says, Enter not into judgment with your servant. For no one living is righteous before you. That's what their Scripture said. The lessons of Scripture just seem to be so clear. This one real simple yet horribly complex reality that the person who has not come to grips with their own unrighteousness, no matter how much religion they have, they have not met nor seen nor understand to any extent the true God who is holy. Remember the lesson God gave all of us through His prophet Isaiah? Let me, let me let you really see Isaiah, me. Let me let you see me, the Lord, Yahweh, high and lifted up in the temple. And the angels saying, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah's one response is, whoa, very bad for me. For I am a man of unclean lips who lives amongst even my fellow Israelites, people of unclean lips. Why? Because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. No one who is open to the glimpse of the real Creator, the real God of heaven and earth, the real God of Israel, to the extent a person is open to that, they cannot anymore stand on their own self-righteousness and achievement. Those who see themselves as righteous, like goes on today, goes on in Christian churches, and it went on with these particular Jews in the first century, it is because they are comparing themselves with other sinners and not with the God of Isaiah. The Pharisees looked at the tax collectors, the prostitutes, and what they would say, just sinners, these general fellow Jews who were not as scrupulous as they in keeping the oral traditions and ceremonial purity. They're sinners to them. And they say, in comparison, look at us. We're righteous. We have no need of a doctor concerning our standing before God. They thought they were better than these people. But they're looking at the outside. 
That's the point. They're looking at their exterior works and deeds and synagogue going, Pharisaic meetings and, and quoting of Scripture and dialoguing about theology. They're looking at the outside when God all along looks at the heart. Just, I say that so confidently because let's just go to Jesus. It's what Jesus says to this same group of people later in Matthew. He says this to them. Woe to you, Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like, on the outside, whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within you are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. See, if we try to impress one another in this world, in religion, etc., at times we may think we're coming out looking pretty good. But you only do that when you can't see your own corrupt heart. And it is not a good place for any of us professing Christians to be out of touch with the ongoing corruptness in our hearts. See, here's the question. What we see with the Pharisees, is that really? Do they have they existed for the last 2,000 years in the guise of Christianity? Now, I don't mean Jewish people. I mean it's Gentile people as a whole. Has the church produced this type of sectarian community that we have again and again and again and again and again. Let me quote for a moment from one of the commentators, uh, Kent Hughes. In the 18th century, the Church of England had become so elitist and inhospitable to the common man that in 1739, John Wesley, who was part of that church, communion, Okay, the Anglican Church. John Wesley had to take to the graveyards and the fields in order to preach the gospel. Why? Because the people he wanted to reach, the coal miners and what are called the lowly in the society, there's no place for them in the church. They wouldn't let them in. We, he goes on, says we have poignant Accounts of Wesley's preaching to 30,000 coal miners at dawn in the fields and the resulting saving power of the gospel evidenced by tears streaming white trails down cold, darkened faces. Now, he says, Wesley was no schismatic, but because there was no room in the established church for the common people, he reluctantly founded the Methodist Episcopal Church. Now, tragically, a hundred years down the line, after what Wesley started of the Methodist Church, same problems happening again with them. And so William Booth needs to start a new movement coming out of Methodism. The church, we Christians, are always susceptible to such. I remember probably, what, two, three years ago, honey, talking to, we have a church right down the corner, a very sectarian Christian church. And I remember, it was nice, I finally got to talk to one of these people, and she was probably 18, 19, grew up 
in her family in this church. But here's the nub of the thing, because in talking to her, I asked her directly, and she, here's the answer. Uh, would you, if I invited you or any of your family to have dinner with us, have dinner? And the answer was no, she would not, because we had a TV in our house. The reality is that the one true holy God sees the depths of our sin internally. He sees our thoughts today, our feelings, our motives. He sees the pride that may make us think we're better than the other. He sees the bitterness we are all tempted to harbor. He sees our lustful thoughts, our greed that moves us to hoard. He sees that hard-heartedness that says, I can't trust God with my first fruits. He sees us constantly bypass the opportunity to meet a need and love a person, but it became yeah, too intrusive into my felt needs at the moment. God sees with 2020 vision how we love the things of the world. He sees it as our hearts, genuine Christian. He sees it when our hearts are growing cold. Toward Jesus. And Luke war. The Jesus who gave his life for us. And Jesus answered them Those who are well, they have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. I have not come to call the righteous. But I've come to call sinners to repentance. The Pharisees had spiritual cancer. But they didn't know it. The tax collectors, they knew themselves. They knew how lost and gone and what thieves and cheaters and corrupt people they were. They knew that in their Jewish society, they were unwelcomed. They were, for the most part, a tax collector. You were excommunicated from the local synagogue. They felt it's absolutely hopeless that God would ever reach out to me. But Jesus made it clear that it was exactly those who understand who they are that He came to call. Repentance. Big word. He came to call such corrupt sinners as we and as Levi to repentance. What's going on here? What does that mean? Most of you know the Greek word metanoia. It's, it's, ultimately, it goes back and it's made up of two words, meta and no, eh, oh. 
meta here meaning a change, a changing, and noeo having to do with your thoughts, your mind, your your purposes. So an internal mind thinking change is what he's called to. Okay, got that? Now with with Luke, we're in Luke. Luke has already let us know in chapter three, verse eight, with the words of John the Baptist when he said, "Now." Bear fruits in keeping with that internal change. In keeping with repentance. That means that repenting is what Jesus calls us to. And what that is, is not some mere outward act at all. It refers to an inward change and move that does affect then outwardly particular acts. Repentance here is not the deeds. It's not the outward change. It's the inward miracle change of mind, of heart, of affections that then shows itself outwardly. Jesus calls sinners, like Levi, to this change. And so, when He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners to this inward change that manifests itself in the way they live their life. They might even leave their livelihood, uh, like Levi. But repentance isn't Him leaving Something happened that caused him to leave and happened first in him. When Jesus says that, he did not mean, oh, I don't call the righteous. That there are some people that are good enough to not need repentance. That's not what he meant. He means there are some who are deceived enough to think they're good enough. I want to turn to one text that I find very significant for Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees in our text here, and that is to flip over to chapter 18 of Luke. Luke introduces Jesus' parable this way in Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And treated others with contempt. Sound familiar? Here's his parable to get this point across. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. And the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself. Don't miss it now. The Pharisee is going to be praying. Okay? To God. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way. God, and he is thankful, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast Twice a week. And I give 10% of all that I have. 
or get or earn. Jesus goes on. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus concludes, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified. Not the Pharisee. Remember, Luke has just said, this parable is dealing with the question of how a human being, a sinner, is justified, made righteous before God. He also said this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And at the end, this guy's the one that went down justified. Those words, righteous and justified, the same word group in Greek. And to be justified in the New Testament, it means for God to declare something about you. That you are in God's eyes Righteous. Not, not, not that you have earned it or you live it, but He declares it about you. He declares it about the tax collector who admitted, I'm a sinner. And God says, this one went down with me declaring Him to be righteous. That's what God does to repentant tax collectors and sexual sinners, perverts, and religious, self-righteous people. The whole parable is about contrasting those who trusted in the religion, in the religiosity, in themselves, according to Luke, with those who looked away from themselves to God's mercy to them a sinner and so here's Jesus he's down there somewhere by the sea in Capernaum and he's known Levi and here's the day he gives him the look he's got his attention and he says let's go follow me now here's the miraculous thing Levi's eyes were opened and he responded he responded to the grace that Jesus would even look at him and He would say to him, Follow Me. And therefore, Levi found miraculously within himself repentance. He didn't find gloomy, well, I don't know if I want to, okay, I guess I'm going to live the rest of my life and it's going to be miserable. It's not what he found and that's not repentance. Repentance is not a person realizing God took away all these fun things from me and I can't do that anymore and I can't do that anymore. That is not repentance. Repentance is, oh my gosh, I heard Him say it to me. 
The king is unique being. Jesus said, follow me. Oh, it might mean lots of stuff to leave, but in joy, he went and says, okay, let me throw you a party so that I can tell my other tax collector buddies, sit at table with you, talk to them, would you please? Because this is unbelievably good. That's the repentance he calls sinners to. It's an exhilarating repentance. So, as I close, okay, oh, the, the application here is for every one of us who have already become a Christian. And if you haven't, oh, it's for you. So this is what I mean. 30 years ago, <laughs> I heard a call. Follow. I heard that as a broken down, pot-smoking, foul-mouthed, drunken thief. I was in no danger of being a Pharisee. Of being a Pharisee. Thirty years later, today, it's a constant danger to the likes of me. God purposed in His sovereign plan before creation to send His Son into the first century Jewish religious milieu that included the Pharisees. So we would have such confrontations that we, even Gentile Christians later on, would have such stories to look at as a constant warning to us. Do not miss it. These Pharisees devoted their life to religion. They devoted their life to the Scripture. They devoted their life to doing the best that they understood to, knew, to do for how do you get to God and please God. They didn't miss synagogue services. They packed their bags numbers of times a year to make the festivals at the temple in Jerusalem. They ate kosher food only. They ate out of dishes that were only ceremonially cleansed. They kept those type of laws to a T. They tithed. But not only that, no, no, no. Your tapateo, spices, make sure you pour out 10% of that first and bring it to the temple priests. That's how they lived. They fasted. They prayed. They had particular set pray times every day in their life. They were even reformed in their theology. They knew they were God's elect and chosen. But Jesus excluded them when He said, I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. The last
lesson is the community of the local church for the ages and for today is to never become like the community of the Pharisees in the first century. We is the community of Christ who have been called to repentant life and life change, etc. We stand and we exist on the ground that we are sinners being saved by a Savior. We're a community of beggars who are open to share the bread of life with other beggars out there who want the bread of life. Who would have thought that this greedy, hard-hearted thief, legal thief, tax collector, would become part of the very inner circle of Jesus Himself? Who would have thought a few years later now you got these guys, okay, we love Jesus, and we're in the church, that God would call this Pharisee, who in his religion wanted Christianity stamped out, who held the coat of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Who would have thought that, that God would call that kind of guy to such a central place in world history? In the church. I mean, Ananias, I want you to go and deal with this Saul. What? You're crazy. He's trying to kill me. I'm a Christian. This is the gospel. God is in the business not of calling good people. Ever. He's in the business of calling rotten sinners. The most unlikely people to Himself, to be in Christ. And as churches, therefore, we dare not imply only the good enter here. Jesus did not come to call the good, but sinners to repentance. It's always a test for us especially down the line of our Christianity. Do you think that you, I mean you, we're not talking about Christ's life. We're talking about your life. Do you really think that innately you are good? You should be alarmed. Our message as the church of Jesus Christ is to people this. If you can come to grips with the reality of the depth of your sin before a holy God, then this promise is for you. Christ died for the ungodly. And then, if you will therefore repent and turn to Jesus Christ, then you will have the joy of having Him dine with you. And the joy of having Him use you to invite others to the banqueting table. Let's pray.
Lord, may you use this story of the low-life Levi in such a deep way in us here throughout this week and month and the rest of our lives that we would see that glorious daily battle of the grace of your light shining and thus our sensing the more of a depth of our sinfulness but the tension of how that is to cause deeper communion and faith and rest and trust and in filling of your spirit as we walk with you as sinners who have found the bread of life saying to other fellow sinners you can have it too